recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 10th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we will resume our presentation of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Clifton Emmerheiser's bi-monthly publication is now ready for his website, and I apologize for being late with that. Clifton sent it to me several days ago. It'll be posted hopefully Monday or Tuesday. Right now, over six years of Clifton's Watchman's teaching letters are now newly available on his website in podcasts. They are very well done, and they are certainly worth listening to. I believe we have approximately 81 of them posted. And all of the first five years of his ministry, if no, all of the first six years of his ministry. We started redesigning the Christiania Mein Kampf project back in September, and we had hoped to have it up and running by the end of the year. Now, I think we might make it by the end of October. I've been getting some complaints about the audio players on the Bertrand Comparay site. Even with the newer software that, that I'm um, installing on the websites now, on Christagenia and the MindComp site, occasionally when you're listening to a podcast, the podcast stops. Usually that's caused by an interruption somewhere in the line of communications between your computer and the server. It could be with, a, with, with another server. It could be with some router somewhere on the Internet. And, and um, your browser thinks that the podcast has downloaded completely, and even if you replay it, it will stop back at the same spot again and again and again. And the way around that is to clear your browser's cache. Firefox is notorious for this. You have to clear your browser's cache. And after you do that, you should be able to play the podcast again and hopefully play it through to the end. That's a problem that it, it's... Um, some people have complained, and the people that complain complain rather persistently. I can't do anything about it. I can't guarantee the connection between your computer in your hometown and, and, and my server that could be half a world away. The um, servers that I lease to operate Christagenia on are the best that I can afford by far, and, and um, that they won't be replaced anytime soon. The Compare site, nevertheless, will be upgraded to new software hopefully sometime in early 2015, the Compare site and the Swift site, and the other smaller Christagenia projects. There will be a new Saxon Messenger site first. With that, we will commence with our presentation of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, part two. We left off only a few verses into the first chapter last week. Here, we shall briefly review the last few verses, which we discussed at the end of our first presentation, beginning with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
At verse 4, where Paul wrote, I thank my God at all times concerning you in reference to the favor of Yahweh that is being given to you among the number of Christ Yahshua, seeing that in all you have been enriched in him, in all thought and all knowledge, just as the proof of the anointed has been confirmed in you. Consequently, you are not to be wanting in even one favor, anxiously expecting the revelation of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, who will also secure you until the fulfillment, void of offense in the day of our Prince, Yahshua Christ. In this offering of gratitude to Yahweh on behalf of the Corinthians, Paul briefly mentions three things which reflect ideas that all Israelite Christians should consider to be among the most concrete Christian doctrines. The favor granted to the Christians at Corinth, the proof of the anointed, and the security of that favor until the fulfillment when the Corinthian Christians would be found void of offense. Discussing the favor which was being bestowed by Yahweh God upon these Corinthian Christians, we cited passages from Jeremiah chapters 30 and 31, which demonstrate that such favor was a matter of prophecy and was promised by Yahweh to the children of Israel. This is explicit in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 2, where it says, Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword, found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. We then explained that the proof of the anointed is manifest in the return of the children of Israel to Yahweh their God upon their hearing of the gospel, as prophesied in those same chapters of Jeremiah, and also in Isaiah chapters 49 and 54. When we reach verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 here, we shall indeed see verification for our interpretation of Paul's use of the phrase, Ho Christos, or the anointed, as a reference to the body of Christians collectively, as well as where it refers to Christ himself. That Paul used this phrase in one way or the other, and which way he used it is dependent upon the context. That the Corinthians would be found void of offense, that the fulfillment is a reflection of Paul's faith in the words of the prophets that Yahweh would cleanse all of the sins of the children of Israel without exception. Discussing that, we cited Isaiah chapter 53, Jeremiah chapter 33, and Micah chapter 7 as three witnesses that that is certainly the intention of God to cleanse all of the sins of the children of Israel, to forgive all of the sins of the children of Israel. And there is no exception. For these same reasons, Paul said in Romans chapter 11, 
that all Israel shall be saved. And as the word of Yahweh says in Isaiah chapter 45, but Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed or confounded world without end. This is going to be a recurring theme in this epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There are no conditions upon Yahweh's promise to all of Israel to cleanse all of their sins or upon Yahweh's promise of salvation for all of Israel. Men who attempt to rationalize these things actually end up denying the words of the prophets and the gospel. We will see further proofs of these foundational Christian doctrines as we progress through this first epistle to the Corinthians. Now we shall commence with 1 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 9. The trustworthy is Yahweh, by whom you have been called into partnership, and that word can be rendered as fellowship, with his son, Yahshua Christ, our prince. And the apostle John agrees in the opening chapter of his first epistle that the ultimate station of partnership with God and Christ. And he says from verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship or partnership, same Greek word that Paul used, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be fulfilled. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Partnership or fellowship with God necessitates the agreement of man with God, meaning that man must be obedient to God. The children of Israel alone were called into this partnership, and when they sinned, they were punished by Yahweh, their God. We read in Amos chapter 3, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Well, God's not going to agree with men. God is not going to agree with the sins of men. He will forgive the sins of men, but man must become obedient to and agree with God. Verse 10. Now I encourage you, brethren, by the name of our prince, Yahshua Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there may not be divisions among you, but you are disciplined in the same mind and in the same purpose. 
That word disciplined is interesting, I think, anyway. The word caterizo, Strong's number 2675. The, word, the noun, catartesis, is a training, an education, or discipline. However, the verb may also mean to adjust or to put in order again, to restore, to restore to a right mind. The children of Israel becoming disciplined in Christ, accepting the chastisement by which they were punished, which we just announced from the words of the prophet Amos. Accepting that chastisement, accepting the fact that they have sinned, repenting and turning to obedience in Christ, the children of Israel are restored to a right mind. And that is what Christian discipline is. It's a restoration of your mind to agree with the law of God. That word nome is defined here as purpose. It could be judgment. It's judgment in the King James Version. However, the context here, in the context here, it is better off being translated as purpose because it's in, it refers to one's own judgment or thinking and not one's judgment of others a word described, a, a, an idea described by the word krima. From Jeremiah chapter 32, we may see that Paul is expressing the same will as God concerning Christian agreement. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again unto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart, one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. To do that, we all need one mind. We all need to conform ourselves to Christ. Likewise, we have an example in Acts chapter 4. And the first Christian community after the passion of Christ and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. The Christian purpose should be towards the edification of the body of Christ, and that is the seeking of the kingdom of God. Christians must apply that purpose in their daily lives and not merely speak, but also act towards that edification. From chapter 2 of the lone epistle of the Apostle James, what does it profit, my brethren? Though a man say that he has faith and has not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warm and filled, notwithstanding, you give them not 
of those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, if faith has not works, it is dead, being alone. Christians should act on their faith and be of one mind towards one another. To do that, in order to accomplish that, we all must agree with Christ. Verse 11. It has been disclosed to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of the house of Chloe. Chloe is the way I would pronounce the Greek form of the word. That there is contention among you. The phrase by those of the house of Chloe is literally by those of Chloe. The words the house are inferred. It's certain that Chloe was a Christian woman of Corinth, even though she is, she's not found elsewhere in the scripture. Here it is evident that Paul was exchanging letters with certain of the Christians in Corinth, and in this epistle, he is responding to those letters. First, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, it is evident that Paul had written a previous letter to this assembly, which is now lost. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 3, it is evident that Paul expected to receive an answer from this epistle. From its context, the epistle we know as 2 Corinthians does seem to be the next letter which Paul wrote to them after this one. But there is no guarantee that is the case. Of course, the letters in answer to Paul's epistles unfortunately, have not been preserved to us. We can only surmise what has been written to him from what he himself has answered. Verse 12, now I say this, Paul, referring back to the contention among the Christians at Corinth, now I say this, that each of you say, so I am of Paul, but I am of Apollos. But I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. It's, it's hard to um, read dialogue, but this is written in a manner that one person says he's of Paul, and another person says he's of Apollos, and another person says that he's of, of Cephas or Peter, and another person says he's of Christ. And Paul asks in verse 13. Have the anointed been divided? Has Paul been crucified on your behalf? Or have you been immersed or baptized in the name of Paul? Have the anointed been divided? Paul is not asking, as the King James has it, if Christ himself had been divided. Rather, Paul is asking whether the anointed people, which are the body of Christ, had been divided. Because, as we see in verse 12, some Corinthians were professing to be followers of Paul. Others were professing to be followers of Apollos. And that is the Apollos that we see in Acts chapter 18 and 19. Other Corinthians were professing to be followers of Peter and others of Christ. 
Yet all Christians should be of the same mind and the same purpose and speaking the same thing as Paul instructed here in verse 10. So Paul is asking, have the anointed been divided? This group goes and follows that man. That group goes and follows another man. There are other examples in Paul's epistles which confirm that the apostle used the singular phrase, ho Christos, to describe the body of Christ, which is the children of Israel collectively. Hebrews 11.26, 1 Timothy 5.11 stand out among those examples. The intention is quite clear here, as the reference certainly intends to describe the splintering of the Christian assembly into diverse groups, favoring and claiming to follow after one individual teacher or another. This is behavior which should be alien to Christianity, since all Christians are brethren and peers, equal peers, who should follow Christ. From Matthew chapter 23, from verse 8, But be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all you are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father who is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Much later in this epistle, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul once again chastises his readers for the divisions among them, where he says from verse 17, Now, giving this message, I do not commend you, because you gather not for the better, but for the worse. Indeed, in the first place, of your gathering in the assembly, I hear of divisions arising among you, and to some degree, I believe it. For there must also be sects among you, not that the sects among Christians are dictated by the scripture, but because it's inevitable. It's simply inevitable, because we are all fallible men. For there must also be sects among you, in order that those approved will become evident among you. However, in that chapter, Paul is illustrating the presence of the unworthy. He's illustrating those who are not true Israelites amongst the body of Christians. Therefore, he says from verse 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Consequently, whoever would eat the bread or drink the cup of the prince unworthily, how do you do that? How do you eat the bread and drink the cup of Jesus Christ being unworthy. There's only one way. That you're not one of the sheep. That's the only way. Consequently, whoever would eat the wheat bread or drink the cup of the prince unworthily will be liable of the body and blood of the prince. But a man must scrutinize himself 
And thus, from of the wheat bread, let him eat. And from of the cup, let him drink. For he that is eating and is drinking, eats and drinks condemnation for himself, not distinguishing the body. Not figuring out who the sheep are and who the sheep are not. For this reason, there are among you many feeble and sickly, and plenty have fallen asleep. If then we had made a distinction of ourselves, perhaps we would not be judged. But being judged by the prince, we are disciplined in order that we would not be condemned with the society. One reason why we have so many divisions in the body of Christ is that so many people, like these first century Corinthians, would rather be followers of men rather than scrutinizing themselves and endeavoring to be followers of God. These people often follow a single teacher, which is what Paul is addressing here in this first chapter of his epistle. Rather than listen to all men and compare what they have heard against the word of God, which means that the responsibility is on the individual. Compare what they have heard against the word of God in the scriptures, as the Berians of Acts chapter 17 had done. The next reason is that there are wolves among the sheep, whether they know they are wolves or not. And those wolves cause divisions because they themselves cannot come to the full knowledge of the truth. Being bastards, they bastardize the word of God. If men would only believe the scripture and measure the words that they hear by the scripture, they would reject the wolves. Often among identity Christians, we hear complaints about the divisions among us. At least once a week, I hear from some identity Christian or another of complaints about the divisions among us. One great reason for this is because men perceive everyone who wears the label to be true specimens of the substance which the label represents. However, a wolf in sheep's clothing is not a sheep. Just because someone wears the label, that does not make him of the substance. When men stand up for the word of God, there are no longer any material divisions, any divisions that matter, because they drive off the wolves from their midst. Verse 14, I thank Yahweh that not one of you had I immersed except Crispus and Gaius, that not one may say that into my name have you been immersed. The immersion of Crispus is described in Acts chapter 18, and I'll read from verse 4. And he, meaning Paul, argued in the assembly hall during each Sabbath and persuaded Judeans and Greeks. And as both Silas and Timotheus came from down from Macedonia, Paul was impelled by the word 
affirming to the Judeans Yahshua to be the Christ. But upon their opposition and blaspheming, shaking off the garments, he said to them, Your blood is upon your heads. I, now clean of this, shall go to the people. And removing from there, he went into the house of someone named Titius Eustace, who is probably the Titus of Scripture, a worshiper of Yahweh, whose house was abutting the assembly hall. And Crispus, the leader of the assembly hall, believed in a prince with his whole house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were immersed. Later in that same chapter of Acts, the Corinthians had a different assembly hall leader named Sosthenes, who evidently also may have been converted to Christ by Paul, if he is the same Sosthenes mentioned in the opening verses of this epistle. Gaius, if this is the same Gaius of Derbe in Lycaonia, was in Ephesus with Paul during the troubles with the coppersmiths, Acts 19.29. And he was still with Paul in the Troad when the epistle to the Romans was written, Acts chapter 20, verse 4, Romans 16.23. However, his conversion to Christ was evidently not recorded. Paul first passed through Lycaonia, where Derbe is, for the gospel in the events detailed in Acts chapter 14. Gaius may have spent a considerable time with Paul. Verse 16, Then I had also immersed the house of Stephanus. I know not any, and, and literally that is, I know not whether any, other remaining that I had immersed. Stephanus is only mentioned here and in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. During Paul's long ministry in Corinth, which was over a year and a half, he may have baptized others, but admits not actually remembering as much. And here, while Paul uses the word commonly trans translated as baptism or baptize, and if by using it, if he was referring to water baptism, it is also clear that by this time in his ministry, water baptism was no longer seen by him as a necessary or even a relevant ritual. Paul is purposely diminishing the importance of the ritual of baptism here by downplaying any role he had in it by expressing relief that only a few of these Corinthians can point to him as having baptized them. The very next line in this epistle demonstrates as much where he says, Christ sent me not to baptize. In Acts chapter 18, when Paul had gone to Corinth for the first time, he met Priscilla and Aquila, and evidently he spent considerable time with them. Then, later in the chapter, where Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus and first encounter Apollos, the Apollos mentioned here in this chapter, we read, <coughs> excuse me, we read from verse 24, and a certain Judean named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, a learned man, arrived in Ephesus, who was capable 
in the writings or in scripture. He was instructed in the way of the prince, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught precisely the things concerning Yahshua, knowing only the immersion or baptism of John. And he began to speak openly in the assembly hall, and Priscilla and Aquila, hearing him, took him aside and more precisely exhibited the way of Yahweh to him. The same Apollos must have went on to become a notable Christian teacher, since he is mentioned in verse 12 of this very chapter, and also several times later in this epistle. Acts chapter 18 ends with Paul's leaving Ephesus and traveling to Syria, and then back once again through Anatolia. As Acts chapter 19 opens, we read of Paul's return to Ephesus. And it came to pass, with Apollos being in Corinth, Paul had passed through the highlands to come down into Ephesus, and finding certain students, then said to them, So believing, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they to him, Rather, we have not heard if there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, In what have you been immersed? Or in what have you been baptized? And they said, in the immersion of John. Then Paul said, John baptized with an e or immersed with a baptism of repentance for the people, saying, in him coming after him that they should believe, that is, in Yahshua. And hearing, they were immersed in the name of Prince Yahshua. And with Paul's laying hands upon them came the Holy Spirit upon them. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and they were in total about 12 men. They spoke in languages and prophesied. Paul crossing through the central parts of Anatolia, as we see in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, to enter into Ephesus from the west or northwest, encounters 12 men in the highlands or the mountainous regions which lay to the west of the city and he baptizes them in Christ. However, these men already knew the water baptism of John. Like Apollos, they had to be shown a better way. So therefore, baptizing them in the name of Christ certainly was not just another baptism in water, especially in a place where sufficient water may have been difficult to find if they were really in the highlands in the mountainous regions. For the same reason, in the opening of the book of Acts, Luke recorded the words of Christ which said that John immersed in water, but you shall be immersed in the Holy Spirit after not many days hence. The immersion in the Holy Spirit, it can't be in water. Much later, writing while he was a prisoner in Rome, Paul had told the Ephesians that husbands should love their wives, just as Christ also loved the assembly, and had surrendered himself for it, in order that he would consecrate it, cleansing it in the bath of the water in the word, that he may present it to himself in honor, the assembly not having a blemish or a wrinkle or any of such things, but that it would be holy and blameless. Now, Paul wrote his epistle, this epistle, this first epistle to the Corinthians, 
while he was in Ephesus for three years, after he had encountered those men in the highlands above the city. From Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says that there is but one baptism, and Ephesians was written much later from Rome, and his words in Romans where he asks, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? It is evident that the meaning of true Christian baptism transcends the water ritual. For Christ proclaimed several years after he himself underwent the baptism of John, but I have a baptism to be baptized in, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? So the baptism of Christ can't be the baptism of John. Luke chapter 12, verse 50. Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5 summarize this for us. Dying on their behalf, the children of Israel are cleansed in the death of Christ, and Christ himself did the cleansing. The report of that, the report of what Christ did for us, is the baptism in Christ. The children of Israel being immersed in the message of the gospel, are baptized in Christ in that manner, being reconciled to him and therefore agreeing to keep his commandments. As Christ told his apostles, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you, John 15:3. Because Christians should truly be immersed in the word of Yahweh their God and the gospel of his Christ, Paul then tells the Corinthians in the very next verse of this epistle, in verse 17, that Christ sent me not to immerse, but to announce the good message, not in wisdom of speech that the cross of Christ be left empty. Paul's commission was explained to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, where he speaks with Christ in a vision. But the prince said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. For I shall indicate to him how much it is necessary for him to suffer on behalf of my name. Then Paul elaborates upon his vision on the road to Damascus much later on in Acts chapter 26. For this have I appeared to you. For you to be a chosen assistant and witness both of the things you have seen by me and of the things I shall reveal to you, taking you out from among the people and from among the nations to whom I send you to open their eyes, not to baptize them, for which to turn them from darkness to light and from the authority of the adversary of Satan to Yahweh, for them to receive a remission of errors and a portion with those being sanctified, the children of Israel. 
by the faith which is in me, Paul was not sent to baptize, but to announce the gospel. Now Paul makes a parenthetical statement in verse 18. And he writes, For the account of the cross is folly to those who are going to die, but to those who are being preserved, to us it is the power of Yahweh. There is no stronger and more succinct of a refutation of universalism in Paul's epistles than in this clear statement which we have here in verse 18. That the account of the cross is folly for those who are going to die. The children of Israel have a promise, as John says, I'm sorry, as John records, and as Christ says in John chapter 10. And that promise is exclusive to the children of Israel. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Why do so many of the sheep insist upon extending that promise to others whom God has not chosen? This is one example of the wisdom of man that shall be brought to nothing by the true wisdom which is with God, as Paul is about to explain. From Matthew chapter 7, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Every bad tree. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven, meaning the good trees that can't bring forth bad fruit. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in my name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. False prophets, 
the gathering of grapes from thorns. You can't find grapes among thorns. And figs from thistles. And you can't find figs among thistles. And the bad tree that cannot produce good fruit. All of these things are synonymous with those who cannot help but work iniquity, even if they claim to be doing it in the name of God. As Christ explains in this parable. And therefore, they must be bastards who cannot do good because Yahweh God did not create them. How do we know that? We know that because Yahweh did not create anything bad. And if good trees cannot produce bad fruit, then Yahweh did not create the bad trees because everything he created was good. That alone explains why there can be people who claim to believe in Jesus and who even claim to have done mighty works in his name, yet in the end, they are not accepted by him. As the Apostle John explains in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, there are people born of God. And there are people born of the world, meaning they are born in sin because they are not born from God. Those people must be bastards and not of the race of Adam which God created. If they were of the Adamic tree, they would not be able to produce bad fruit. If all Israel is granted, is granted mercy, if all Israel is cleansed of all their sins, and if all Israel is ultimately granted salvation, then those who are going to die cannot be of Israel. Yet it is folly to bring the gospel to anyone who is not of Israel because only Israel has a promise of eternal life. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither. Shall any man pluck them out of my hand? My father. which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. The bastards cannot stand to hear the true gospel. They'll stone you for it. Verse 19. Indeed, it is written, I will destroy the cunning of the shrewd, and the understanding of the sagacious I will set aside. 
The words cunning and shrewd are actually both translated from forms of the same Greek word, sophos, which is usually wise in the King James Version, but here the term is used disparagingly. The words understanding and sagacious were translated from the same Greek word, sunaitis, which is intelligent or wise or sagacious. In the translation here, it was chosen to avoid the redundancy, which does appear in the original. Here in verse 19, Paul quotes from Isaiah 29:14, where his uh, Greek is identical to the Septuagint, except for one word, which is odd. That word is hide in the Septuagint, rather than set aside here at the end of this verse. Whenever the Old Testament is cited in the scriptures of the New Testament, men should inquire as to why it is being cited and investigate so as to determine the full truth of what is being spoken. In order to see the context of the passage which Paul is citing, we shall read Isaiah chapter 29 in part. Woe to Ariel, Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year. Let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. Thou shalt be visited of Yahweh of hosts, with thunder, and with earthquake, and great noise, and with storm, and tempest, and the flame of devouring fire, and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her, and her munition, and that distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. For Yahweh has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers, has he covered. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he says, For I cannot. It is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Wherefore, Yahweh said, for as much as this people draws near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid, and Paul says, shall be set aside. The word of Yahweh, which Paul quoted here, describes the wise and prudent among the ancient children of Israel. That the wisdom of their wise men would fail because it was of themselves, and would therefore be vanquished by the wisdom of God, leaving their worldly wisdom to be confounded. This being done, if we read Isaiah chapter 29, this being done, the children of Israel would be brought 
back to obedience to God. Since Isaiah tells us later in that same chapter that those same Israelites who had at one time erred in spirit and who had been murmurers were going to be among the redeemed of Yahshua. With this we see that the message of this abolition of the wisdom of men is ultimately a message of reconciliation and obedience for the children of Israel. Later in Isaiah chapter 29, it says, from verse 22, Therefore thus saith Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he sees his children, the work of mine hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. We cannot imagine Paul to have been using Isaiah's words in a different in a different context than Isaiah himself had expressed them. As Paul said in Romans chapter 15, now whatever things have been written before have been written for our instruction, so that through the patient endurance and the calling of the writings, we may have expectation. There's your expectation when Jacob sees his children in the kingdom of God. Paul then ended his epistle to the Romans with words that are reminiscent of this admonition here in 1 Corinthians, where he said in Romans chapter 16, Now with ability you are to stand fast in accordance with my good message and the proclamation of Yahshua Christ, in accordance with the revelation of the mystery having been kept secret in times eternal, but being made manifest now through the prophetic writings, in accordance with the command of the eternal Yahweh, for the submission of faith to all the nations, in discovering that Yahweh alone is wise, through Yahshua Christ, to whom is honor for the ages truly. So we see Paul profess that Yahweh alone is wise, and his word shall stand against all the folly of men. From Proverbs chapter 3, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear Yahweh and depart from evil. And of course, the Proverbs have about 500 verses which may be quoted, which are pertinent here. Where is the cunning? Verse 20. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Did Yahweh not make foolish the wisdom of the society or world in your King James Version? The Greek word suzetetes is a disputer here. Properly, it's a joint inquirer or a co-examiner, according to Liddell and Scott. That's the literal definition of the word. The word is used, the verb, suzeteo, is used elsewhere in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, to describe someone who is disputing, to dispute, Acts chapter 6 and 9. Here in verse 20, Paul seems to be paraphrasing from both Isaiah 19.12 and Isaiah 33.18. 
The first passage, Isaiah 19.12, was an oracle against Egypt, and it says, Surely the princes of Zoan are fools, and the counsel of the wise counselors of Pharaoh is become brutish. How ye say unto Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings. Where are they? Where are thy wise men? And let them tell thee now, and let them know what Yahweh of hosts has purposed upon Egypt. And of course, Egypt was the greatest of civilizations in its time, and Yahweh purposed to diminish and destroy it as a lesson to man. Man has not yet learned that lesson, that the wisdom of God cannot be supplanted by the wisdom of man. The second passage Paul cited is more obscure, but it is related to judgment and Israel, and we shall read from the Septuagint version of Isaiah 33, verse 14 and 18 and 19. The sinners in Zion have departed, trembling shall seize the ungodly. Who will tell you that a fire is kindled? Who will tell you of the eternal place? Where are the scribes? Where are the counselors? Where is he that numbers them that are growing up, even the small and great people? The passage is ultimately contrasting, if we read the entire chapter, those that seek the righteousness of God with those who follow after worldly wisdom, setting themselves up as authorities, and sinning they shall be punished where those who seek the righteousness of God shall be established. Yet neither passage explicitly mentions the disputer of this age. And Paul seems to be comparing the attributes of those ancient sophists of Egypt and Israel, mentioned by Isaiah, to the so-called wise men and scribes of his own time. The Christ had turned their wisdom to foolishness through his resurrection and the account of the, of the gospel, which was being spread throughout the world and which was being accepted by people who were willing to die for it. However, the reference also invokes a recollection of Revelation chapter 12, where the word of Christ says from verse 10, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. But the revelation is not recorded for another 40 years after Paul wrote this epistle. So Paul's not quoting or alluding to the revelation itself, but perhaps had the same idea in mind, speaking of the disputer of this age. In his epistle... I'm sorry, let's proceed with verse 21. Since indeed, in the wisdom of Yahweh, the society does not know Yahweh through wisdom. Yahweh has been pleased by the folly of the proclamation 
to preserve those that are believing. In his epistle to the Romans, Paul challenged men that they should have known God through the wonder of his creation. However, rather than glorifying God on account of the wonder of the creation, something which is seen in the ancient wisdom books, if you read the, the Psalms of David, the Book of Job, the Proverbs of Solomon, the Wisdom of Solomon, they all glorify God for the wonder of his creation. Yet, amongst the Romans, the opposite occurred. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. In the sophisticated world of Paul's time, the gospel account was foolishness, and it still is today. The assertion of Paul is that Yahweh purposely chose such a fantastic manner in order to announce his salvation to Israel, so as to exclude those who relied upon worldly wisdom for their understanding. The folly of the gospel is a recurring theme in both Paul's epistles to the Corinthians, and he seems to be answering the challenges of sophists and scoffers. The manner in which the children of Israel would be saved by their God is alluded to or described in the many messianic prophecies spread throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalms. However, the basic crux of the argument is this. If there is a God, then he must be able to transcend his creation as it appears to men. And therefore, there must be more to his creation than men can perceive. Paul also broached this topic in his epistle to the Hebrews, in chapter 11, where he said, in verse 3, by faith we perceive the ages to be furnished by the word of Yahweh, in which that which is seen has not come into being from things which are visible. Where Paul says that the purpose of the gospel is to preserve those that are believing. There is no conflict with the words of Christ in the parable or in the passage of John, which are mentioned above. The parable from Matthew chapter 7 and the passage of John from John chapter 10. In the parable, certain men claim to believe, but they are not preserved. The reasonings of men are that those men really did not believe, but that is not inferred by the text. The truth is that those men in the parable were not true Israelites, since Christ tells them, I never knew you, depart from me. And here, Paul is referring to Israelites alone, since his commission was to bring the gospel 
to the dispersed nations of Israel. Those of Israel who accept the gospel and who are obedient to the law of God as a result of their acceptance of the gospel, they are preserved in this life. Speaking of the disobedient, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of a certain fornicator to deliver such a one unto Satan for destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. All Israel is saved in the end, in the resurrection, which is through the spirit. However, in the meantime, Israelites turned to Christ in this life, seek preservation in this life through the keeping of the word of Christ, that they may have a share in building the kingdom of God on earth. Verse 22. Then since Judeans demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we proclaim the Christ crucified, to Judeans, indeed a trap, and to the heathens, or to the nations, folly. At the end of verse 22, the majority text has Greeks, so the King James has Greeks, but all of the ancient manuscripts read ethne, or nations. The word for trap in verse 23, to the Judeans, the cross of Christ is a trap, is that word scandalon, from which we get the English word scandal. Often in the King James Version, it is rendered as a cause for offense, or simply as an offense. Here the King James has stumbling block. We discussed this word at length when we presented Romans chapter 11 just a few short months ago. Christ crucified is indeed a trap to the Judeans, since if they profess to the law and the prophets, they had better accept the Messiah, who the law and the prophets had promised. And if they don't, then they entrap themselves as hypocrites, hypocritically keeping the law and the prophets. That describes Jews, Muslims, and, and really many Christians today. Christ, is, Christ crucified is folly to the pagans of the nations, since regardless of whether it is he who the scriptures foretold, the account is so contrary to worldly wisdom that worldly men would think it incredible. As it is described in Acts chapter 17, when Paul preached the gospel to the men of Athens in verse 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Interestingly, the prospect of returning to the land of the living from death was a topic of some of the earliest Greek literature of our Adamic race. It was the subject of an ancient Sumerian epic, Inanna's Descent to the Netherworld, which we actually presented recently on a Saturday program here at Christagenia. 
And only 500 years before Paul spoke in Athens, it was the subject of a play by the famous tragic poet Euripides. The play is entitled Alcestis. The Greeks who scoffed at Paul were also scoffing at some of their own most ancient traditions. To the, to the, the Platonists, the followers of Aristotle, the Sophists, the Epicureans, the, the Greeks of Paul's time who were steeped in, in many different philosophies, the Stoics, the Epicureans, those people had forsaken their own ancient traditions and their ancient literature and with their philosophy and their sophistry they had a, a, a civilization based on knowledge like we have today. To them, the account of the resurrection from the dead was ludicrous, just as it is today. But to those, the called, both Judeans and Greeks, anointed of Yahweh power and of Yahweh wisdom, seeing that the folly of Yahweh is wiser than mankind, and the weakness of Yahweh is stronger than mankind. The called, of course, are the children of Israel, whether they be Judeans. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the ancestors of these Dorian Greeks were indeed descended from the ancient Israelites. There he tells them, now I do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all had passed through the sea, and all up to Moses had immersed themselves, baptized themselves in the cloud and in the sea, meaning that they were immersed into God through the Exodus. And all had eaten the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of an attending spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. Yet with the greater number of them, Yahweh had not been pleased, for they had been thrown down in the desert. But these had become models for us, for us not to become desirers of evil, just as also they in that place had desired. There were people among both the Judeans and the Greeks who were not called. There were Jepetai Ionians. There were Edomites. There were other Canaanites. The Canaanite races, both Adamic and mixed, who were at this time among both Judeans and Greeks. Paul speaking in reference to those who are called is limiting the scope of his message to the children of Israel. From Isaiah chapter 44, Yet now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen, thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. From Isaiah chapter 48, Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first, I am also the last. Paul was not teaching anything contrary to the words of Yahweh in Isaiah. Rather, 
Paul was teaching the fulfillment of those words in Isaiah. The children of Israel accepting the gospel of Christ are anointed with the wisdom and knowledge of the truth from God. The Apostle John taught the same thing in different terms where he wrote in chapter 2 of his epistle. Let that therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning them that seduce you. They don't have eternal life. But the anointing which you have received of him abides in you. The anointing for which reason Paul calls them. Ho Christos. The anointed referring to the people. But the anointing which you have received of him abides in you, and you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it is taught you, you shall abide in him. Verse 26. Indeed, you see your calling, Brethren, since not many are wise in accordance with the flesh, not many are powerful, not many are noble, not many men attain to the highest positions of wisdom and authority, recognized or granted by the societies of the world. Those that do are frequently offended or scoff at the gospel of God. Verse 27. But Yahweh has chosen the foolish of the society in order that he disgraced the cunning. And Yahweh has chosen the feeble of the society that he disgraced the strong. And the low-born of the society and the despised Yahweh has chosen. Those that are not in order that he may annul those that are. Paul is certainly not referencing things here, as the King James Version seems to interpret the phrase at the beginning of verse 28. From Deuteronomy chapter 7, from verse 6, For thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God. Yahweh thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth, Yahweh did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because Yahweh loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn to your fathers, has Yahweh brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The children of Israel were reduced to a position of slavery in Egypt, and Yahweh their God brought them out of that slavery in a miraculous fashion 
so that they would understand that their special position with him did not come from their own merit. Likewise, Joseph, the early foster father of the Messiah, was the legitimate heir of David's throne, but he had been reduced by worldly circumstances to working as a carpenter. So when the people heard the wisdom of Christ, they asked, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 6, is this not the carpenter? And they were offended by him. Yahweh has purposely chosen those of low estate to affect his will in order that he may annul those that are the princes of this world, that the institutions of man get no credit for man's salvation, and therefore the institutions of man are all doomed to failure. As the statement that Yahweh chose those that are not in order that he may annul those that are. At the time of the promise to Abraham, the promises made to Abraham that his offspring would become many nations, none of those nations existed at the time of Abraham. Of course not. If they had existed, then they couldn't be Abraham's offspring. The seed of Abraham in the children of Israel ultimately supplanted many once great Adamic nations, which Yahweh cast aside for the sake of the promises to Abraham. At the time of Abraham, Egypt, Assyria, Elam, which is Persia, many other Adamic nations had already become great nations. This is what Paul meant in Romans chapter 4, when in relation to that promise he wrote that Yahweh calls things not existing as existing, speaking of those nations of Abraham's seed even before Isaac was born. And Abraham did indeed inherit the earth by the time of Christ. By the time of Christ, the seed of Abraham was the predominant peoples of the Adamic world, the Romans, the Parthians, the Scythians. Verse 29, So that not any flesh shall boast in the presence of Yahweh. Moreover, from of him you are in Christ Yahshua, who has become to us wisdom from Yahweh, and justice, and sanctification, and redemption, in order that, just as it is written, he who is boasting in Yahweh, he must boast. And the humble Christian must understand that since no flesh may boast before God, then no man is able to do anything to save himself, and no man is able to do anything to augment the salvation and mercy which he already has in Christ. We'll speak about this topic at length in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Therefore, salvation cannot be made through rituals or through the works of the flesh. 
You don't have to be baptized to be saved. You have to be obedient to Christ, baptized in Christ, to be preserved in this world. And you have that promise. But you don't have to be baptized to be saved in the spirit, which has already been saved. All of Israel is already saved. And therefore, we help one another in building the kingdom of God on earth. In this last verse, Paul seems to be paraphrasing from Jeremiah chapter 9, where the word of God says, Thus saith Yahweh, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glory, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, which exercise, which who exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith Yahweh. This passage from Jeremiah, also rather appropriately summarizes many of the sayings Paul explained in this very chapter, that man must trust in God rather than trusting in his own worldly wisdom. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night. I will be here tomorrow night. I really hope to do a, another two seed line presentation. I'm going to, because of the circumstances of my busy life this last week, I'm going to have to forestall that. Tomorrow night, Martin Luther, good night.